0: It's Tuesday, November twenty seventh. Welcome to Market Fullery. I'm Chris Allen. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Maker. Thanks for being here, guys. Yo, Had happy drag giving you Tuesday to the studio. Happy Tuesday indeed. No giving uh, Tuesday, Chris. Don't 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 <laughs> screw that one up. I mean, it's giving Tuesday. Let's give something. To our listeners. Give, it, give it a little something back? Yeah. All right, let's see what we can do here. Uh, the problems are continuing at HP. Uh, we're going to dig into Cyber Monday a little bit more, but we're going to start with the big deal of the day. ConAgra Foods is buying Ralcorp in a deal worth $6.8 billion. Ralcorp is the largest manufacturer of private label food in the United States, and Jason. This is another one of those deals that seems to be a match made in heaven, because shares of ConAgra up about 4.5% as of this taping, RALCorp up 26% on the deal. Yeah, I guess it it makes sense that the deal is happening. ConAgra definitely
1: wants to scale up a little bit to compete more with the likes of bigger players in the space, like Kraft, for example. Uh, but I, you know, for me, I, I don't really care too much about the deal or the company because you know, looking a little bit further in Conagra, just as a company as a potential investment, I mean, this is not necessarily uh, a company that's been able to return a lot of value to shareholders over the course of the last five years. Uh, they've been able to grow revenue at a, rev- at a relatively decent clip, but net income has. Uh, plummeted, more or less, off the face of a cliff here for, for the past five years. And most of that is because when you look at these companies that are highly acquisitive, like ConAgra, they carry big amounts of goodwill on their balance sheet, for example. Mm-hmm. So now, if you look at uh, at ConAgra's balance sheet, about a third of total assets are goodwill, which is essentially just overpaying for acquisitions, which is potentially what they're doing here again. Uh, but the stock has you know, not let the world on fire over the past five years. It's beaten the market, but but the truth of the matter is that Other than giving them a little bit of a greater presence and, I think, a growing part of the market in private label foods, it doesn't make it any more attractive an investment for for me.
0: When you look at, you mentioned Kraft Foods, and you look at the combined annual sales of ConAgra uh, and RALCorp, it's roughly on par with what Kraft Foods is doing. So, if you're Kraft Foods or a shareholder of Kraft Foods, are you suddenly a little bit more wary about your position? What do you think, Joe?
2: Well, private label is definitely a threat to Kraft Foods and the Mondelez of the world, pretty, the McCormicks of the world, anyone out there who has branded goods, the Procter & Gamble, I mean, the list goes on. But basically, you have a lot of retailers who came upon this idea a few decades ago, maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago, started coming on strong that, hey, instead of letting these guys have all the profits from selling these branded goods, why don't we get in on that? And so that's something that Raw Corp is able to help people out with, and McCormick does that too. Actually, a huge portion of McCormick's business is selling private label spices. I'm kind of going off on a tangent, <laughs> but yes, I do think this is a trend that you're going to see a lot more of in the years to come. Especially as people have traded down from you know paying up uh, for a Procter and Gamble brand, for example, to store brands, and that's definitely hurt a lot of the branded company, a lot of branded companies. But you know, all in all. Branding consumer goods is still a very good business to be in especially ones with repeat business.
1: Yeah, brands, for uh, example, Chef Boyardee, Orville Redenbacher, things like that. It's it's not something you probably gear yourself to go out to the store and buy every time. But virtually every household in America has one or two of these brands sitting in their pantry.
0: Slim Jim, another Slim brand Jim, that I yeah, always I, I don't gross. have any of these in my household. At, <laughs> anytime I'm at a gas station, it seems Cereal, like.
1: Cereal. Uh, th- yeah, Whole Foods, for example, I think is another great example of a store uh, that is, is jumping more into the private label uh, industry. They, For example, when the, when the recession hit and I think most of us thought that that Whole Foods sales were going to fall off a cliff as well. They were able to account or accommodate for that a little bit by selling more of their private label goods, which have now turned around to really bring more consumers in their doors, and, and I think help keep that traffic, that store traffic, growing and the basket size growing. So you can see certainly the growth in private label label brands, and that's where I think this this acquisition does make sense for Canagra. But yeah, uh,
2: I agree that it does. I think because it takes Conagra away from basically the business that they have now. <laughs> I think when you look at a lot of the products they have, you're talking about, you know, popcorn, you're talking about like canned goods, Chef Boyardee. These are things that you buy when you're at the store and you're just kind of leisurely walking through and you're like, "Oh, I love popcorn, Spaghettios." And then it's yeah, and it sits on your shelf for the next two years. I mean, they're just not repeat purchase consumer brands, not nearly as valuable on the same same dollar, same market share, something like Razor Blades that Gillette has or Revlon and makeup. So, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's a terrible company. It's a good acquisition, but.
0: I think it's going to give them honey bunches of oats. That's a pretty good cereal. <laughs> I, but isn't that an advantage, sort of a hidden advantage for ConAgra that, you know, Slim Jims, those <laughs> things will last forever? They're counting on the mindless American consumer. They're just going to go
1: aisle to aisle to aisle and just scrape a can I'm of, sure some you know of their Slim Jims. will be like gold during the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> you know
0: what? Plenty of people have made plenty of money betting on the mindless American consumer. You're darn tootin'. You can always drop us an email, radio at fool.com. Uh, last week we had an email. We We only did one podcast last week, and uh, it was after that that we got this email from Prajesh Mishra in Bangalore, India, who wrote, I just read about the $8 billion Hewlett-Packard write-off on autonomy and can't wait for you guys to come back from Thanksgiving and rip HP apart with your incisive, (laughs) funny, and ruthless comments. Uh, A little backstory here, Joe. I think it was mid-2011 that Hewlett-Packard acquired... Autonomy, which is a, a mainly a software company uh, um, last week HP announced that they were they, they acquired it for eleven billion last week HP announced that they are writing down eight point eight billion of that. Um, what is going on here because oh. a, a, as of the time that we walked into the studio? to start taping today, I'm seeing reports of not only investigations in the U.K. and the U.S. in terms of autonomy's accounting practices, uh, Reuters is also reporting uh, a shareholder lawsuit that's building up against HP because of this.
2: Well, there's some validity to those, and I think HP will end up showing out some money, but those are kind of side issues for them. The bigger issue is that they overpaid for autonomy to begin with, and whether whether or not they're cooking their books, and it sounds like there's a good chance they were, Uh, I think HP's biggest issue was just that they went out and paid 11 times sales for a business that didn't fit with their core. They didn't have really good strategy for what they were going to do with it. And they were just kind of mindlessly throwing money at a problem. And the problem is they can't grow. And this is just coming home. To roost for them. And if it wasn't autonomy, you know, it could have been something else. You remember that ridiculous round of bidding that they went after 3PAR for with Dell? Yep. I mean, they were just going through this phase where they just couldn't throw enough money at the problem. And this is ultimately coming home to roost. And, yeah, I mean, sure, if autonomy is cooking the books, that doesn't help. But at the core is just a lack of focus and strategy and poor capital allocation at the top.
0: Jason, what do you think when you see this? Because uh, on the one hand, you've got. Um, HP stock, which is trading in the neighborhood of its fifty-two week low, um, it dropped probably a, a lot more weeks than I that. I was it'd yeah. probably go a little bit lower. Uh, it, it dropped about ten percent last week <clears throat> when uh, when this news broke. Uh, And it it seems like there's um, a lot of fires that uh, CEO Meg Whitman is dealing with at this point. Uh, I mentioned the lawsuit, the investigations that are ongoing. There's also this back and forth with the former CEO at Autonomy where she said on the conference call last week, hey, look, we were misled. She was At the time, she was on the board of directors at HP, and she said, look, we were misled. Um, and you have the former CEO Michael Lynch of Autonomy saying, "No, you weren't misled." And Deloitte signed off on our uh, all of our accounting practices. What do you think when you look at something like this?
1: I mean, I think it's a real shame that this is happening. I'm, I'm flabbergasted that this could have snuck under the radar of HP in this in this acquisition. Uh, I, I think that it's it's interesting to have this alongside the Conagra acquisition that we're talking about today because I think it serves uh, for investors out there. As as a great lesson, whether it's a tech company or you know just consumer staple company like like Conagra, when you have highly acquisitive companies or companies that are making acquisitions, number one, it's nice to see that they have a track record in making good acquisitions. But number two, it's good thing to pay attention to that balance sheet line item uh, for goodwill. And when you see companies that have big amounts of goodwill, especially in relation to their total assets on the balance sheet, you have to start wondering. What is that from, and can I expect this to take a hit sooner or later because if it takes a hit, it definitely will affect the company's performance down the road and and so we're seeing that in you know full form here with Hewlett-Packard today.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's some positives to come out of this. You have to dig deep to find them. But (laughs) one one is that it's going to force, it's cast a spotlight on tech companies and how acquisitive they've been and the the premiums that they paid. And, you know, this deal happened middle of last year. And that was around the time where valuations for a lot of tech companies, especially, you know, big data at at the time. Now we're talking big data. Then it was social. Then it was the cloud. And at that point, people were just paying absurd (laughs) <laughs> premiums for tech companies and we said as much on the show and people disagreed, and we look stupid for a while but now i think we all feel pretty smart that's <laughs> probably part of it <clears throat> the other thing is that auditors are definitely feeling some heat on this if you're deloitte you are definitely feeling uncomfortable about how this is shaking out and yeah. you're wondering like You know, as a shareholder of HP, I think you're very validly wondering, what are these people for? The auditors that we paid to assess this, because this wasn't even all that hidden an issue. There were actually some short sellers prior to this deal being consummated who had presented compelling short cases on autonomy, basically on the same thesis. So it's not like there wasn't evidence pointing to this conclusion.
0: And to be... I guess maybe not to be fair but uh, just to provide be unfair uh, just to provide a little bit of context I mean when you look at accounting there are there are different standards there is a US standard for accounting there is an international standard for accounting that said yeah it's it really, not like that's what you hire auditors for. it's not it really, like they're black and white it really light. seems like Deloitte should have been on top of this I absolutely think so um I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'll ask anyway. Um, when you look at HP stock, when you look at companies in this situation where it's hard to imagine how much more can go wrong, I mean, we've talked before about a company like Microsoft, and our colleague Ron Gross has said you know, for a while now look, this is a stock that is basically pr- priced for zero growth. And if they get any growth whatsoever, the stock's going to do well. When you look at HP, do you look at a company that's sort of in a similar situation, where so many things have gone wrong? it is actually in that dirty value territory for you? Or or is it the case where so many things are going wrong, you want no part of it?
2: Yeah, I don't want any part of it. I think there are structural disadvantages and problems here and they don't have a solution or there's there's no fix and they've tried to acquire their way out of it and it's not working. You know, To be honest, I can always tell that someone's about to pitch me a value trap when they say something like, what's <laughs> priced for no growth when you back out the cash i'm like uh-oh <laughs> that's just always the always the pitch leading into some tech company that's, that's behind a the eight ball yeah. you're saying that's a tell it's a tell
0: um let's go back to cyber monday we talked about this on yesterday's podcast but the numbers continue to roll in as we get more information about uh, how much money people spent yesterday online and it appears to be and this is according to comscore uh, it's not just that yesterday was the biggest online shopping day of the year. It appears to be the biggest online shopping day ever. Uh, $1. <laughs> one and a half billion dollars. I, I, I was saying to Mac uh, earlier today. I feel like Black Friday is essentially done. And if I could, if I could short Black Friday, if Black Friday were a stock, I would short it. And if Cyber Monday were a stock, I would buy it because well, you, fe- you can do that. It's <laughs> it's
2: called the short Best Buy, long Amazon trade. <laughs>
0: Um, you were saying earlier today, this is, I mean, when you looked at the numbers, this to you is just one of those sort of obvious things like, look, just invest accordingly.
2: Yeah. I mean, foot traffic for, and I completely agree, there's an insane amount of hype that goes around Black Friday. And everyone was talking last week, including us, about how brick and Brick-and-mortar retailers were adapting, but they weren't really adapting by offering better online strategies. They were adapting by trying to one-up each other on opening their deals sooner, you know, opening late on Thanksgiving. That is not a long-term solution. So foot traffic was up about 3% on Black Friday. A little apples and oranges here, but Cyber Monday sales were up 30% online. I mean... Look at those numbers. Yeah. There is a substantial difference here and when you're thinking about where you want to invest your money for the long term, you know, you're definitely swimming against the tide when you're talking about 3% growth on one end and 30% on the other and you know, I definitely think that investors should be moving away from brick and mortar retailers and looking more at the Amazons of the world, the eBays of the world, the Googles of the world, companies that are in a position to take advantage of this, you know, still early shift towards online
0: commerce. And Jason, we talked yesterday about the the hidden winners in this whole thing, and that's the, the payment companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it seems like when you look at the bricks-and-mortar retailers, another thing working against them is just the cost from a financial standpoint and a resource standpoint in terms of marketing. They have to do so much more marketing, whereas yesterday I was getting emails from everyone from, in terms of Cyber Monday, from... Southwest Airlines to Grape and Bean, which is just a local wine and coffee shop here in Alexandria. Is <laughs> it is great. It anyway, is well, great. Great. Well, there
1: is a lot to be said for just the simplicity and the message and the existence. I mean, we know that a company like Costco, for example, exists to provide their members the lowest prices they can in a setting that they you know prefer to to shop in, and, and Amazon we know exists. To provide the lowest prices possible and give you free two-day shipping, along with everything else, under the sun with your Prime relationship. And so you're right; with these these brick and mortar retailers are faced with huge hurdles, not only in just the the capital-intensive nature of maintaining these huge facilities, but advertising, convincing people. The one-up strategy, like Joe was talking about, well, we're going to sell earlier. It just eventually doesn't work at all. Has to come to a head eventually. And when you look at the behaviors. And the amount of room that's still left to go for people to buy online, in other words, so much of that so much of that shopping is still done in brick-and-mortar stores today, but that trend is shifting. And then just the shift in mobile payments, uh, I mean, we were seeing here where more than 18% of consumers used a mobile uh, device to visit a retailer site on CyberMoney. So, when you see these mobile devices getting into people's hands, and that's how they're doing their shopping and they're paying – The trend is playing. It's right there in front of you, and you need to invest in the companies that are really taking advantage of that movement. Google, Amazon, Apple, companies like that are are the big winners in the space.
2: Yeah, and the winners are just getting stronger. So, some great data that Comscore put out on Friday, or for Black Friday, was that of the five biggest online retailers- And Amazon's far and away the biggest. Uh, Amazon actually grew the most this year of the five biggest. And I think that just speaks to the power of what we've talked about on the show where like size begets more size in the online realm. And ultimately, you're just going to see Amazon keep offering more goods and keep cutting prices on those very aggressively. You know, a lot of people think that's somewhat of a suicidal strategy, but I think it's treated them pretty well. And I think it'll continue to do so. And it's just keep bringing in more customers.
1: Yeah, I think Joe says some people think that is a suicidal strategy. I understand that. And I think he and I would both agree that ultimately Amazon will come out on top there. And it's interesting because I saw an, an interview with Jeff Bezos, I think from about a week ago with Charlie Rose, and the question was posed to him point blank, are you going to be opening physical retail sites? And Bezos' point was look, we've talked about that, we've are interested in, in the possibilities of it. But at this point in the game, there's nothing we can do to differentiate ourselves other than to open up a physical retailer store and try to advertise and market and sell things at a lower price. But we can't really change that game. There are people in that space, they do a good job, your Walmarts and your targets. So there's no real reason for Amazon to get in there and try to try to take that space. They're gonna do what they do best, which is online retail. And when you look further and see, you know, consumer behaviors trending that way I think that makes a stronger case for these for these online retailers.
0: What do you think the big challenge is for a company like Amazon when you look the next couple of years out? Because it, as someone who is a shareholder and pays some measure of attention to that company. The thing that I keep seeing, uh, just sort of in pockets, and over Thanksgiving when I was up in Boston, there was a story in the Boston Globe, just local story about this. Um, It's the state tax issue. It seems like that's something that Amazon has dealt with well to this point. But the whole notion of uh, when you look at individual states in America and how they are struggling with their own balance sheets, that seems like that has to change over the next five years or so, that something will be done for states to be able to collect taxes from, you know, behemoths like Amazon.
1: Well I think if that does change, it'll change and it'll put everybody on a on a level playing ground. I, I think that Amazon has addressed this a number of times with the belief that the tax issue isn't what really drives traffic to their site as much as it's the prices and the convenience and the wide selection of offerings, and so I think that'll continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. I, I just extrapolating it to my own personal experience, I mean, I don't go to Amazon because I feel like I can get a tax-free item. I think that they're going to collect taxes for the states if that's what if that's what they're told to do. Uh, they're figuring out that well, if they do that, they can build warehouses and more distribution centers in more states, and they can create a bigger footprint possibly offer some of that same-day shipping we've heard uh, rumors of. So, I think, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's still going to work out in Amazon's advantage. You agree with that, Joe? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> we'll end it there. Joe Baker, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. For our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.